0: Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When a term was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learnt of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking And Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn away, turn from these thing, vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without weakness, for he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to uh, Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch where they had commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples.
1: Our Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give You great thanks uh, that You have given us Your Word, uh, and that Your Word, first and foremost, is Your Son, that through him we can know you, through him you have revealed yourself, through him you have shown us what it means uh, to be human, uh, what it means uh, to live, and what it means to be saved. Uh, we thank you that in the, gosp- in the book of Acts, uh, it's, it's, it, it, we see the gospel going out, the gospel of life and salvation and forgiveness of sins, uh, that in no other name but Jesus uh, can we be saved. And we thank you that the gospel has come down to us today, and we thank you that it will continue to go out because you are faithful and powerful to draw more and more people to your son. So today, as we look into this part of your scriptures, and as we look into this missionary journey, the gospel going out into the Gentile world, that you would encourage us, and that you would challenge us in our own gospel ministry. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, if you've been around in SLE Church over the last uh, few months or perhaps even a year, you would have heard us start talking about things like pathways, right, pathways. Now, we think that it's uh, actually a very loving thing to consider how people kind of come into church and how people come to faith and how people continue on that pathway to be maturing in Christ. Uh, they're not just sort of systems that we're introducing uh, because we like systems or structures, but because we think the idea of pathways is actually really loving and really helpful for us uh, in seeing the gospel come to us and mature in us. Now, the idea of pathways, which is kind of a more newfangled term, uh, ties in or fits in with the age-old idea of a journey, right, of a journey. Now, sometimes we talk about the Christian journey or the journey of faith. Have you ever talked about uh, your, your faith like that? Uh, we all have a journey that begins, a faith journey that begins somewhere. Uh, perhaps uh, some of us are born into a Christian family, and our journey began from where we couldn't even remember. Um, or maybe it was exposure to faith in school, uh, from friends or colleagues that you met along the way, or perhaps from something pretty random and unexpected, uh, a moment of crisis where you cried out to God, or an Instagram or Facebook post, uh, or maybe even a dream. Some people kind of come through and and, and are interested in Christianity through a dream that God gives. And right now, by the fact of being at church, uh, you are, by definition, somewhere on that journey, aren't you? That you're here today a story that has a start, that progresses, that has all sorts of challenges and complications, uh, all sorts of experiences, a journey with a direction, a goal, an end uh, that we're heading towards. Now, the book of Acts is about the journey of the gospel going out. Let me just turn on my clicker. Now, it's spelled out to us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So if we go back to the book of Acts. We see that the book of Acts is about a journey, right? But you will receive power. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples uh, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Right? it's the journey of the gospel, right? Going out. You see that, right? From Jerusalem, and the red, red dot there, or the red shaded bits, and it spreads out, isn't it? Uh, to, uh, in Acts 1-7, and then Judea and Samaria, Acts 8-12. And as we heard last week, the gospel of salvation goes to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and out into the ends of the earth as we keep on going in the book of Acts. And we'll talk about this more in a moment. But there's another journey that we also see, right, which is the journey, in a sense, of the gospel minister and those who are ministered to. Right? The gospel minister has a journey, and those who are ministered to has a journey as well. You see, in this gospel mission that we'll see in this passage, uh, there is a, a ministry journey or pathway that we can notice patterns, things that are common right, to all of gospel ministry and to being ministered to. So let's get into point two. Right? Gospel to the ends of the earth. In Acts 13 to 14, last week and this week's passage, we read about the first, in a way, overseas mission. Um, uh, you, you can see there, it actually literally goes uh, over the sea. Um, At the beginning of chapter 13, so don't worry about the details there. I'm going to zoom in on the red bits in a second, okay? But this is to give you an idea. This is a real part of the world, right? This is the Middle East into uh, Asia Minor back in the time and into Europe. Uh, At the beginning of chapter 13, if you just flip back in your Bibles very quickly to uh, chapter 13, we see Paul and Barnabas who are set apart, right, and sent out, right? Which literally in the Greek is apostles, right? The, The sent ones on mission, by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel. And so we see in Acts 13, this is what happened, right? They began at Syrian Antioch on the right there, right, in the west, sorry, in the east, right, that that Antioch that's in the east. They sailed to Cyprus, then on to Pamphylia, Pisidian Antioch, Uh, and then at the end of the chapter, in chapter 13, they arrived at Iconium. Have a look in your chapter 13, they began, Syrian Antioch end up in Iconium. And this week in chapter 14, we find them in Iconium. Um, there's a lag on this, isn't it? Okay, that's good. Um, the machinery continues from Iconium. As you see in this chapter, they go to Lystra and then finally to Derby. Uh, after which they turn around. They turn around. Okay. Um, and they go back through. Uh, you see there, they go through, what is that, Lystra um, and Pisidian Antioch out back through Perga, across the sea to Syrian Antioch from where they started. Right? The first missionary journey begins and ends, chapter 13 and 14. Best guess is that this journey took about a year. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, who had been sent out, returned home right, to give their missionary report, their mission spot, so to speak, uh, to the church that had sent them. Now, what I might read simply as a travel diary of two men is in fact so much more than that. Because this would be the first of so many journeys of Paul and many others in the years and the decades and the centuries that followed. The gospel has journeyed on through space and time. Right? The gospel has truly gone to the ends of the earth. Right? The impact of the gospel going out is impacting us right here and right now. God has kept His promise that through Paul and Barnabas and his people, Salvation will be brought to the ends of the earth. So, the first question I want to ask us is How did the gospel come to you? Let's personalize this because it is personal, isn't it? How did the gospel come to you? Now, it wouldn't be a bad thing to trace backwards just in your own life, to spend some time reminiscing about how the gospel came to you in your life. It wouldn't be a bad thing to learn some church history as well. Uh, now, I really hated history when I studied it in high school. It seemed so boring. Uh, such irrelevant facts that I just didn't care to know about, right? Who hates history in school? Yeah, right? Amen, sisters. <laughs> but you see, when I got to Bible college and I was forced to learn church history, I actually thought, wow, actually, I, I, I kind of still kind of hated history, let's be honest. But I really enjoyed learning about how the gospel came to progress from the first century through the years across the globe, arriving to me and to you. How the gospel came to Brisbane, Australia, or to wherever part of the world you first heard the gospel. How the gospel that was preached to just a few people in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago came to be preached to millions upon millions, to billions all around the world across the last 2,000 years. Now, I think that's history that's worth knowing. Because I think it grows our appreciation for how great God is. It grows our praise and worship and awe of God. Our praise for the Holy Spirit who sent out Paul and Barnabas and who have sent out millions more with the life giving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the journey of the gospel through history is an awe inspiring and God glorifying story. Now, each person also has a story, isn't it? Each person that comes to faith also has our own story, our, our, our own unique journey, because we are all special like that. There is no cookie-cutter model to everyone coming to faith. But there are some things about gospel ministry, uh, about people becoming and staying and growing as Christians that is common and crucial to all stories. I think any genuine believer would have some things that are common, and in all gospel ministry has some things that are in common. We can actually see even in this chapter. In this first missionary journey, there are some kind of common and crucial things that we're going to press into right now. Now, The first is that we see this common pattern of a divided response through this passage. It happened to Jesus. Uh, It happened to Peter and the apostles in Jerusalem. It's happening here in Gentile areas to Paul and Barnabas in this chapter. And it's happened all through the past 2,000 years of gospel ministry. Right, the divided response. On the one side, we see that many, right, a great number believed. Right? There will always be people who come to faith. Right? Why is that? Well, because the gospel was preached. And because the gospel is amazing. Now, let's remind ourselves, what is this gospel that they were preaching? So back in the previous chapter, Acts 13 tells us, uh, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. In Acts 3, before verse 12, early on in Peter's sermon, he said, There is no salvation, sorry, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, the gospel, it meets our greatest need. Those who recognize that need come to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come to see that there is salvation in no one else but in Jesus Christ. That there's no other way for our sins to be forgiven. No other way that we can be freed from the the guilt and the emptiness that fills our hearts. The, The wickedness and the brokenness of our lives and in the lives of the people around us and around this entire world. The gospel will always be embraced and treasured by those who see their need. Right, many have, many are, and many will believe because the gospel is the best news ever. Now, a great many believed also, as we see in this passage, because of the signs and wonders that were done. Right, back, uh, signs and wonders were hugely important. Right back in the New Testament times when it was written. Right, there were evidence of the breaking in of the kingdom of God. Right, it's really important to understand signs and wonders in the Bible. Right, all through the Gospels, we see Jesus perform many signs and wonders to show that He is the Son of God, that the kingdom of God is breaking in. And so signs and wonders throughout Jesus' three years of ministry. Here in Acts, we see the same thing, that signs and wonders are associated with the kingdom of God coming in. By right, the Apostles uh, at the beginning of, this, uh, of the book, um, in Jerusalem, I think note of the setting there, in Acts two to six. you can read all about it. Peter and Philip in Samaria. you can read all about it in Acts chapter eight and nine. Paul and Barnabas here in Acts 14, Paul in Macedonia in Acts 20, and then finally in Malta. Now all these names might not mean much to you, but have a look at the map. Right, it corresponds, isn't it, right, to the gospel going out. Jesus comes, signs and wonders, kingdom of God has arrived. The apostles received the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, signs and wonders, right, many of them, right, in chapters 2 to 6. Why? To to attest to the kingdom coming. Signs and wonders when they go to Judea and Samaria. But as we get out, right, to um, where we are now, right, Lystra, Derby, and so on, Asia Minor, there's a couple, a few signs, then it's just one when you get out to Macedonia, and then one when you get out to Malta, and then... The rest of the New Testament, there's just no mention, really, of believers, disciples, missionaries, gospel preachers having to perform signs and wonders. Instead, in every chapter of Acts, in every chapter of the New Testament, it's all about preaching the gospel, proclaiming Christ, teaching the Word of God. That is what we are on about. That's the pattern of ministry. Signs and wonders were special when the kingdom of God arrived. But now what is common, what is the pattern, what is the power, is the preaching of the gospel without the need for signs. Now, signs and wonders in the early church, they brought people to faith. But even more so, the preaching of the gospel. But most important of all, it is because of the Lord who empowers them both. Have a look at uh, verse 3, right? Verse 3. So they remain for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, if you were to read chapter 14, you could easily just sort of skim past, uh, read quickly through and miss what's being said. Here. I had to stop, right? Who is the who in verse 3? Right? is the Lord, isn't it? Uh, Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly and did signs and wonders, but it is the Lord who bears witness. It is the Lord who grants signs and wonders to be done. You see, people come to faith ultimately because the Lord Jesus is empowering the ministry of the gospel. People um, come to faith because Jesus is the one bringing them to faith and providing all this necessary for us gospel uh, preachers and sharers right, to bring people to faith. Now, isn't it a supremely comfort, comforting thing to hear? Isn't it a, a supreme comfort to know that as we try and as we share uh, the gospel to our family and friends, to strangers maybe even, right, in, in, our, in our weakness and in our anxieties about doing that, as we kind of fumble and stumble over the, the right words to say, as we worry about whether we've been convincing enough or whether we've stuffed it up. Rest assured, brothers and sisters, that it is the Lord who bears witness to His grace. It is He who empowers our weak and feeble words. And so amazingly, people come to faith through our gospel ministry. They really do. It may not be that you're there right at that moment where they confess Christ. But every effort that we put in along the journey, and there are some pretty great stories coming out of life that I'm not sure we can share at the moment. We will eventually, won't we, Jordan? Yeah. But there are some amazing things about how the contributions uh, that the people make in in sharing the gospel uh, actually wonderfully is used by the Lord to bring people to faith. So on the one hand, we have many people come into faith. However, on the other hand, many also won't come to faith, right? This is the divided response, isn't it? Uh, many among them uh, opposed the gospel uh, and opposed them as the apostles. Uh, and I won't go into this too much because we've looked at this point a lot uh, last few weeks in Acts, as well as all through 1 Peter in our last sermon series. I encourage you to listen especially to last week's sermon to see the constant pattern of rejection and opposition. Um not you notice again that the opposition in Acts 14 had a role uh, of, of, um, of spreading the gospel, right? Every time there was, uh, there was opposition and persecution in the early church, the gospel kept going out, right? The, the way that the gospel goes out is often driven by opposition and persecution. It pushed Paul and Barnabas on uh, from one town to the next uh, so that more would be able to hear the gospel. It was the same back in the time of Jesus, Uh, It's it's like that in the first, second, third missionary journeys of Paul, and it's been like that ever since. Uh, The main thing to know and to remind ourselves is the words from 1 Peter, that we are not to be surprised when persecution comes. We are to expect a divided response. This is one clear pattern of gospel ministry. Yes, the rejection is real and it sucks, but you know what? equally as real, is that many will come to faith because the gospel is great and Jesus saves. So press on. Now, the second pattern that we see is the desire for worship. Now, in verse 8, we see Paul in Lystra, and he's healed a Gentile man who was lame from birth. Right, if you read your Bibles carefully, you'll realize, oh, this is the exact same miracle that Peter did uh, back in chapter 3 in Jerusalem. Uh, it's the exact same one that Jesus performed at the temple in Luke chapter 4 at the beginning of his ministry. Remember, once again, it's the evidence of the kingdom breaking in. Right? Now, when the crowds witness this, they're blown away. Have a listen uh, from verse 11, right? chapter 14, verse 11. When the crowds saw that Peter had, what Peter had done, sorry, Paul, Peter, Paul, Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Do you get a strong sense that these people were desperate, right? were dying to worship? They have all these Greek gods that they were worshiping. Now they see these two fellows and, and they, they do something amazing. They want to worship, right? They, they were bursting. I kind of like a balloon that's bursting with water to be, when you prick it, wanting to gush out. It's kind of like that, right? Just this worship seems to want to gush out of these people. Um, they see something miraculous. They see something that's kind of divine and of God. And suddenly, right, they're running back to their temples, grabbing all the worship paraphernalia and coming out, right, wanting to sacrifice and, and do all their worship stuff with Paul and Barnabas, Right, there's this miracle, this healing. is like a pinprick to the a balloon full of worship that just wants to pour out. Now, I think, no, I, I believe and I'm certain that we're all like that. Right, not that these, these these people worshiping their Greek gods. I think we're all like that. Right, we're all bursting right, to worship. Right, we're all created for worship. You see, for all of human history, in every nation, in every tribe, uh, across every people group, in every culture, there is worship. And you can do any historical study, there is, there is no place, no time, no culture where there isn't worship because everyone needs a reason to get out of bed every morning, a higher purpose to live by, someone or something that is bigger than ourselves, bigger than what we can see and touch that is worthy of our time and money and energy and service and devotion and our awe. We are are searching for transcendence to find joy and meaning, identity and security and significance. There There is worship and we're all bursting for it. Just like these crowds. We're bursting to worship someone or something because we were created for worship. Because as the lyrics of one pop group sang once, I shouldn't sing it, should I? No, I won't sing it. I'll just say it, okay? I thought about singing it. I was debating. I'll say it. I won't sing it. There's a God-shaped hole in all of us, and the restless soul is searching. There's a God-shaped hole in all of us, and there's a void only He can fill. Now, who is this God? that can fill this God-shaped hole in all of us. And Paul and Barnabas knew who, and it certainly wasn't them, and it wasn't Zeus or Hermes. Have a listen to verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature to you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, to worship in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. You see, to this Gentile audience, Paul doesn't start by pointing them to Jesus but he goes all the way back to God, the Creator. Now, just a bit of a sneak peek to later on in Acts 17, he does the exact same thing to another Gentile crowd. It's a great starting point, isn't it? To go back all the way to the beginning, to explain that there is only one true and living God, the Creator, who has made all of creation. And this Creator has borne witness to Himself every single day, in a way that the crowds there and all people everywhere in this world for all time have experienced. In the rains that fall, in the sun that shines, in the crops that grow, in the provisions of life that sustains our stomachs and gladdens our hearts. Through creation, God bears witness to himself. That's our history, in every nation, tribe, and culture, people have sought after God. In every heart is a God-shaped hole seeking to know and be filled by the one true and living God. And it's only the one true and living God that can fill that hole. And while it's not recorded that Paul did this here, no doubt Paul would have then gone on to preach about the gospel, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who brings us back, who reconciles us back to our Creator. And so we see our second pattern of gospel ministry and mission here. Right to a world that is bursting to worship, worshiping all manner of gods and idols, we are to point people to God, our Creator, the one true and living God. We are to point people to Jesus, the only way to God. Now, we, we never want to criticize people right, for being worshipers. That is something I've been thinking about over the last few years. I find that with Christians and with myself, oftentimes our first response to someone who worships another god, or maybe they are Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu, uh, or they are Baha'i or, or whatever, or they are a real secularist and, and worldly person who worships the things of this world, we often respond very negatively and very judgy, right? We are very quick to want to go on the attack and to refute their beliefs and to point out all of their errors, now, what I think we could do, at least to start with, in a very real and in a very genuine way, is that we want to actually give even more attention uh, and praise and to commend their worship. Right, The fact that people are devoted to their religious beliefs, to their wholehearted devotion to whomever or whatever it is that fills their life with meaning and purpose and joy, we want people to see that truly... And even more than they realize, they are worshipers. Why not press in and commend the fact that they are worshipers? And then to show them who the true and living God is after that. Right? To show them who the true and living God is. We don't, want them to, we don't want them to stop worshiping. We just really want them to stop worshiping the wrong thing. is that right? We want them to be worshipers of the true and living God. We want them to worship the one who is truly to be worshipped. So rather than attacking worship as a starting point, I'm thinking I want to praise the fact that they want to live for someone or something greater than they are. And then after that, to show them that what they're looking for, who they're worshipping, is not the true living God. And point them to Jesus. Notice, friends, everyone desires worship. We're all bursting too, aren't we? So press on in gospel ministry. Press on in pointing people to the one true and living God. And now we come to the last point of my last sermon as your pastor Uh, deep discipleship. Um, There's a pattern of deep discipleship that we see in this chapter. I think it's a pretty good point, actually, to finish uh, my preaching ministry here at this church. Now, Paul and Barnabas weren't happy just to leave kind of temporary converts when he went through the different towns and preached the gospel. But he was deeply concerned to see deep disciples who would have long-lasting faith. Right? In verse 3, we told that Paul and Barnabas remained there for a long time. Right? It wasn't just a 10-minute, right, two-ways-to-live presentation or whatever gospel tract that we use. It wasn't just six quick 30-minute session of Christianity Explained or live course you know, with a nice dinner for for six weeks. It wasn't just uh, seven sessions of the foundational Bible studies of Just For Starters, as we tick those boxes off. Did you notice that they stayed on a long time? They stayed on even when there was persecution and opposition. Knowing the reality of suffering and hardship, opposition and persecution, even more so, Paul and Barnabas wanted these new believers to be established and built up in the faith right, difficulties and hardships are reasons to stay on and to press in in our discipleship. For them to be given the proper briefing in order to be prepared for the battlefield. Even though, as we read in verse 5, when the persecution got so bad that they were about to be stoned to death, right, they moved on, right? They left Iconium in verse 5 because there was more gospel work to be done. Now, there's a wisdom, I think, isn't there, to knowing when to pull up stumps, to pack up shop, and to move on and live the fight another day. Sadly for Paul, though, in just the next town, he did get stoned. So he ran away from one stoning in Iconium, and he got stoned in the next town, and he barely survived. Now let me read this section out again, picking up from verse 19. Have a look at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, can you see Paul and Barnabas' commitment right, to gospel ministry and to deep discipleship? Right, being stoned almost to death in Lystra didn't stop Paul from pressing on to yet another town, to Derby, right, to preach the gospel. And did you notice what they do next? Right, they went back, right? They went back to Lystra, uh, the very place that Paul just got stoned, back through Iconium, where they were both almost stoned, and through Antioch, where they were driven out at the end of chapter 13. Now, why did they go back? We're told to strengthen the souls of the disciples, to encourage them to continue in the faith, to grow deep disciples who would stand the test of time and trials and make it to the very end. They went back to plant churches. Right? That's what it means for them to appoint elders right, over the believers. It's about planting new churches. In my uh, CSB version of the Bible, the heading for this section is planting churches. I'm like, cool, right? That's what I'm doing. Um, this is a good way to serve it, finish the sermon, right? But that's what they're doing. right? They're appointing elders because that's how you plant new churches, Churches with shepherds who will care for the flock, teaching them the word of God, growing them in maturity and service and gospel mission. And they prayed, committing them all to the Lord. Prayerful dependence on God is absolutely crucial because at the end of the day, we stand only by God's grace. We are strengthened only by God's grace. And only by God's grace do we, are we led home into the eternal kingdom. Now surely this is a pattern of ministry that we all ought to aspire to, a commitment to deep discipleship. Now whether it's as shepherds or as sheep, we're to be concerned not just to see people become shallow converts who say the sinner's prayer at one time, who did the course at one time, but to see believers grow deep as disciples. Now this is what SLE Church has always tried to be on about. Before we ever knew about or talked about pathways and ecosystems, right, SLE Church was always preaching the gospel, striving to see every believer mature in the faith, becoming deep disciples who can stand the test of time and trials right, here in Brisbane and also wherever it is that people leave from SLE Church to go to, interstate overseas. Now, our efforts over the past couple of years to make changes. Uh, to our structures and to our pathways is really and only, right, really and only to help us be better at growing the gospel and growing disciples. Right, to better help us to worship God and to love one another. Right? Pathways, ecosystems, structures, whatever it is, they're, they're nothing unless there are tools for us to be able to worship God more and to grow as disciples who love each other and serve and, and are on mission to see the world reached for Christ. Our efforts to plant a church, same thing. To have a church in the centenary area that will grow the gospel, to see people come to faith in Jesus and grow deep as His disciples. But we can't stop there. We can't stop there. The work isn't done. Far from it. Why? Because the journey of the gospel continues on. The story of God's salvation to the ends of the earth carries on. There are millions, billions who are not yet saved. And so we must be, every single one of us, an active, participating, and committed part of that story of God's gospel going out. Each one of us individually, each one of our churches, SLE, CEC, whatever it is, the journey of faith must also continue for every single one of us. We must press on in growing deep as disciples. In our our church, we talk about purpose areas, connect, grow, serve, reach, worship, purpose areas, pathways, whatever systems or structures or jargons we want to use. Let us be clear what the goal is. We want to become deeper, truer, more faithful disciples of Jesus. And we must, I think, also press on in planting more churches. Now, as the gospel goes out, as people come to faith, and they will, remember? Because God is the one, Jesus is the one bearing witness to His grace. They need to belong to churches that will help them grow to become deep disciples. There are simply not enough churches. In St. Lucia, in the western suburbs of Brisbane, throughout Brisbane, Queensland, Australia, and all around the world, There are simply not enough healthy, evangelistic, and multiplying churches. Like we mustn't think that... Yay, we've done it, you know? you know? Good news, those 50 people are leaving. We're starting a new church. We mustn't think we've done it just because CEC has begun. And we mustn't stop there. We must see CEC as the first of, God willing, many churches. My vision and dream right now already is to see a church planted in the east. As I look at the map, where do I send people to for I like to go to church? In the, in the Carondale, kind of Cannon Hill, Camp Hill area. What about in the north? I got no idea about the north. It doesn't exist sometimes to us south and west side, does it? But I reckon we could use a lot more churches in the north and everywhere else for that matter. And so we must pray because it is the Lord who bears witness to his gospel, it is the Lord who gives the growth, it is the Lord who will strengthen us and keep us faithful. It is the Lord, ultimately, who will grow His people, grow the gospel, and grow churches. So let's do that now. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, we give You praise, for we have seen You fulfill Your promise of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. We give You thanks for the work of Jesus in bearing witness to His work Ensuring that many will come to hear and believe. We pray for the gospel to keep going out through each and every one of us individually and through our churches wherever we are SLE, CEC, or or any other churches we might be in the future. We pray for our own journey of faith. We pray for our gospel ministry, for our efforts to grow disciples. We pray for more churches to be planted. We pray for you to grow our conviction that you will strengthen us, that you equip us to do your work more and more. For we see in the gospel the only words of life. We see in the gospel the only way back for the the hearts that are, are, are bursting for worship to be filled. For indeed, Father, you are worthy of our worship. For indeed, Father, your Son is worthy to be believed in and to be obeyed. And so we pray that you'll help us to keep going out with the gospel. For we pray in his Jesus' name.